I didn't plan to be here today. I don't usually speak on Memorial Day weekend. But about two weeks ago, I just felt strangely moved by God. Mary Alice and I were at breakfast one morning, and I just told her, I said, I think I'm going to speak Memorial Day, and I'm going to bring Bronze Shields. Bronze Shields is a message that God gave to me some time ago about where we are as America, and not just America, but American churches. And so today, I want to bring you a very serious message. If you're a new springer, you know I like to cut up, I like to laugh, have a quirky sense of humor. I just can't really keep it from coming out. But not today. Today is a serious talk. This is Memorial Day weekend, and we're thinking about America. You know, to be honest with you, I've always been patriotic. I love the parades and the Star Spangled Banner at sporting events and just seeing the flag. And in time past, I, I've felt, I felt a legitimate sense of pride. But I've got to be honest with you, lately I've just felt a sense of sadness when I see symbols of America today. Um, the torch has been a symbol for a long time of opportunity and obligation. I love the poem Flanders Fields, which was written back about World War I. And in Flanders Fields, the author imagines dying soldiers passing the torch to the living and saying, now this is the torch, it's yours to hold it high. When John F. Kennedy was inaugurated in January of 1961, many of us um, well, at least if we don't remember it, we'll have heard the words of his inauguration speech in which he said, the torch has been passed to a new generation. And today, you and I are carrying the torch. We're, we're now in the generation of America. The torch is ours to hold. But I don't know that we're doing a really good job in our generation of carrying the torch. And I think we need to have an honest talk about it today. I want to bring a story from the Bible, because this particular story not only speaks to its generation, but it speaks to our generation probably as much as any story that I know of in the Bible. People are always asking me, even from the time I was a teenage preacher, um, I, I was holding youth meetings when I was 16 years old, and I would have people come up and ask me this question. Teenagers would ask me this question 40 years ago. Do you see America in the Bible? Well, I see America in stories like this. So I want to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. We'll tear it apart, and then, and then we'll make some applications, and we'll go home. In 1 Kings chapter 14, the Bible says, During Rehoboam, just keep the name Rehoboam. We'll talk about him in a moment. During Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, provoking his anger with their sin. Can we just stop for a moment, pull over the side of the road? Because we live in an age today where we think that God is sort of the cosmic Pillsbury doughboy in the sky. And, and, God, since, and here's the one I hear. Since God is a God of love, everything is okay. God loves everyone, so everything is okay. Well, God is a God of love, but he's a, he's a God of many emotions. And one of his emotions is anger. And sin makes God angry. My sin, it makes him angry. And so I just want you to notice this is God's people. Judah, that's his nation. It, it, the capital city is Jerusalem. That's his city. The Bible says they did what was evil in God's sight, and they provoked his anger. It was even worse, the Bible says, than that of their ancestors. For they also built for themselves pagan shrines on every high hill and every un, uh, under every green tree. There were even male and female shrine prostitutes throughout the land. The people imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from of the people the Lord had driven from the land of the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam's reign, King Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked Jerusalem. He ransacked the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace. I have this emphasized in my Bible. He stole everything. Historians think this may have been the biggest looting job in all of history, from one nation to another. He stole everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. 
King Rehoboam later replaced him with bronze shields as substitutes. Whenever the king went to the temple of the Lord, the guards would also take the shields and return them to the guard room. My talk today is called Bronze Shields. Rehoboam was a pivotal character, like you and I are part of a pivotal generation. Although the name Rehoboam is probably not familiar to most of us, his grandfather's name would be very familiar. His grandfather was King David. David was the one who killed Goliath and then went on to lead Israel for 40 years and won series after series of military victories leading Israel to its glory days. And although, again, you may not know the name Rehoboam, you know his daddy's name. His daddy was King Solomon, who was the wisest king that Israel ever had. And beyond that, he led Israel after David had had 40 years of success. Solomon led Israel in an expansion project that made Israel the envy of the world. It should have been an easy time for Rehoboam. I mean, after all, he inherited peace from his grandfather's generation and wealth from his dad's generation. You're beginning to get my drift on why that's significant to us? In my parents and many of your grandparents' generation, the great generation, they defeated the Nazis and they overcame the Great Depression. They were were the warrior generation. They were the generation that left us peace. And then after that generation came a builder generation that gave us perhaps the wealthiest nation, the greatest nation of wealth in the history of the world. And that's where Rehoboam came along. He, he, it should have been a two-inch putt. He had peace from his grandfather. He had wealth from his dad. Life should have been easy. And Rehoboam did have one little problem. And see, this doesn't sound familiar. Rehoboam's dad, Solomon, he spent lavishly with all these magnificent projects making Israel the envy of the world. The only problem was, toward the end of Solomon's reign, he kind of went overboard and he began to tax the people too heavily. And even though the people of Israel adored their king, Solomon, they were a little tired of being overtaxed for his lavish building projects. And so when Rehoboam became king, the people came to Rehoboam and they said, we love your dad, we love you, we only have a problem, we would love for you to just do something about this overbearing load that's on us. And Rehoboam said, give me three days and I'll get back to you. And then Rehoboam did something interesting. He called in advisors. First of all, he called in the older advisors who had served his dad. And the counselors, this is in 1 Kings 12, 7, the older counselors replied, if you're willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will be your loyal subjects. By the way, that's great advice for any leader. If you'll be their servant, in other words, they said to Rehoboam, they said, you know, we were with your dad and maybe some of the things toward the end weren't the best things in the world, but if you would just be be these people's servant, they will follow you off a cliff. They they love you. It's not personal. They just want you to treat treat them well. But, verse eight, Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him. The young men replied, this is what you should tell these complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. You know what happened next? The kingdom split. Have you ever read the Bible, especially back in the book of Kings and Chronicles? Do you ever read the Bible and it seems like there's two kings on the throne at the same time? Hey, you don't, you're not making a mistake. 
From Rehoboam on, there was a northern kingdom which nine and a half of the tribes said, we're walking away. We're not going to be part of this anymore. They went and started their own nation. Sometimes it's called Israel. Sometimes it's called Samaria. But they just walked away. And in the southern kingdom, Rehoboam was left with two and a half tribes. And that became the southern kingdom, or sometimes it's known as Judah. So think about that. I mean, you know, he inherited peace from his grandfather, wealth from his father, the kingdom that took a, you know, two lifetimes to establish, and yet Rehoboam blew it up in three days. Do you ever read something in the Bible a hundred times and it doesn't stand? I mean, you miss it. I mean, I, I do that. I mean, and I've, I've been looking at this story since I was a teenager. I always figured that Rehoboam was kind of like, when he became king, I, I figured he's like 18 years old. You know, I mean, he, you know, all of a sudden his dad dies. He just winds up king. And so he, he gets this issue of how am I going to treat the people? And then I'm thinking the older guys like 40 came in and talked to him and they said, you need to treat these people well. And I figured that Rehoboam just went to his high school buddies and they said, oh, I'd be tough on everybody. I do not know how I missed this in all the hundreds of times I've preached it until just the other day. I saw in first Kings 14, 21, he was 41 years old when he became king. My goodness, he was middle-aged. You know, I mean, I thought about this. His grandfather was chasing giants in his teenage years, and here's Rehoboam chasing his tail at 40. I mean, you know, in the great generation, I mean, in their teenage years, they were doing extraordinary things. Rehoboam is like the guy who sits in his underwear playing video games at 40 years old. I said this in last night's service. I heard a lot of laughter. Most of it sounded female to me. <laughs> 40 years old. I mean, and, and yet I wonder, could that be us? We're a generation that's in love with youth, perpetual youth. I mean, there, there are people in my generation, 50 years old, 50 going on 14. And the idea is somehow that's good. Sort of the Peter Pan generation that never grows up and and, you know, we don't want to hear from the older generation. They're no longer relevant. The people who could help us, the people who've seen some life, the people who might be able to help us think a little clearly. Well, anyway, it could have been a teaching moment for Rehoboam when nine and a half of the tribes walked away. I mean, two-thirds of your nation walks away. It's a good time to just stop and take stock and think, wait a minute, maybe I'm not getting off to a good start here. And I don't have time to communicate this, but if you read the inference of the text, it looks like Rehoboam had a window of opportunity where if he had done the right thing at that moment, if he had said to the people, hold on, before you walk away, that might not have been the smartest response that I just gave you. Do you realize they probably would have turned around and come back? The king of the northern kingdom was always afraid that his people were going to be nostalgic and want to go back to the southern kingdom. So Rehoboam has got this opportunity for a do-over. But instead, he's stubborn and stupid. That's a bad thing. There's nothing much worse than being stubborn and stupid. We can all be stupid, but stubborn locks it in. Well, but he blew it off. You know, I've lost the kingdom. But here's the deal. Daddy's money, all that wealth that Solomon had accumulated was pretty well in the city of Jerusalem. So Solomon could just basically say, well, you walk away if you want to go away. We got all of our money. We can party. We can do anything we want to. And nobody can judge us. And nobody can tell us what to do. We've got the money. <laughs> you guys walk away if you want to. But Rehoboam had a problem. And it's the same problem America has 
In fact, this is the same problem the American church has today. You ready for this? Rehoboam wasn't dealing with people. That's the thing. Rehoboam was dealing with God. It's like today when anything comes up, we take a poll. Well, Americans' opinions are shifting on this. Who cares? You do realize when we die, we're not going to be judged on CNN or by TMZ or Salon. We're going to face God. Who cares what we think? Who cares what a nation of people think? Ultimately, our, our actions, our decisions are going to be weighed in the hands of God. And so Rehoboam thought, well, you know what? Let these people go and if they want to go. We're going to do what we want to do. And when you and I read a moment ago, they did awful things. They got into all kinds of weird, wicked sexual practices. But Rehoboam was like, nobody's going to judge us. We'll do what we want to do. But God came along and sent a prophet to Rehoboam and and he said something that chills me as an American today. Second Chronicles 12, verse 5, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, so I'm abandoning you. I get asked by media people a lot of times, and they, they mean well. They're just trying to ask me because they see the shifts in the country. They see the demographic shifts away from God and away from Christianity and away from church. And so they're, they're asking me as if, you know, somehow you guys are going to have to figure out how to deal with this in the marketplace. Well, folks, could I just say, and I'm, I'm not trying to be hard about this. I'm just giving you the truth today. If America walks away from God, God is not going to be the victim here. Do, do we grab that? I mean, here's the thing. I mean, in the sense that God loves us all and he doesn't want us to walk away from him. But if America turns its back on God, it won't be. God's already going to heaven. God is not the victim. And that's what God said to Rehoboam. You understand, you have abandoned me, but I'm not the victim here. God is saying, look, if, you, if I'm no longer a useful hypothesis, if you can't discuss me in your public marketplace, but you've got these male and female prostitutes in your shrine, if you don't have any room for me, God is saying, that's fine, I'll just let you go. Why don't you see how you like being protected by the king of Egypt? I want to give us a construct today. There are three lines to this construct but they're so very important. And you and I don't have to ask if they're true. We're watching it borne out every day in our, in our news. Here are the three lines. Sin brings weakness. And this is true. This is true for a nation. It's true for a family. It's true for an individual. I had lunch this week with a buddy of mine. He's a Jewish rabbi. And of course, you can imagine we, there are a lot of things we, we disagree on theologically. He probably wouldn't, he, he might not agree with my applications. But I did ask him, I told him, I said, I'm going to be talking about Rehoboam this weekend. And here's what he said. He said, doing LeBron Shields thing, he said, it, it's happening in our world, it's happening in our country, it's happening in our families. And as I said, he may not agree with my applications, but he just made the point. Sin brings weakness. If I allow sin into my life, I'm going to be weak. If I allow pornography into my life, it's going to weaken me. If I allow lust in my life, it will weaken me. If I allow greed in my life, it will weaken me. If I allow, if I allow dishonesty in my life, it will make me weaker. If I, I struggle with anger sometimes, if I allow anger into my life, it will weaken me. Sin weakens. Number one, sin causes weakness. Number two, weakness attracts trouble. We're watching that play out in the United States. I mean, we're getting flipped off by, 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 by ISIS. I mean, this is, a nation, this is a nation that has won major wars. Why are we being flipped off by a ragtag group 
But that's the problem. Sin brings weakness. Weakness attracts trouble. The third line is trouble overwhelms weakness. See, everybody's going to have trouble. Weakness comes to, I mean, trouble comes to the strong and the weak. Jesus told the story about the builder who built on the sand, the builder who built on the rock. The same storm battered both houses. The difference was the next morning. Let me go over that one more time. Sin brings weakness. Weakness attracts trouble. Trouble overwhelms weakness. And so it happened in the case of Rehoboam. 2 Chronicles 12, 9, Shishak of Egypt came and attacked Jerusalem. He ransacked the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace. He stole everything. Everything including gold shields. See, Solomon had had made for him and for the nation of Israel 200 gold shields. These shields were not meant to actually be used in battle. Gold is too soft a metal for that. But these shields weigh seven and a half pounds apiece. And, 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 And we really don't know exactly why Solomon had them made, but when I start piecing together the biblical narrative, here's what comes to me. I really believe that Solomon had these gold shields, you know, and when he would leave his palace and go to the temple, those 200 gold shields made a corridor for him to walk. In. See, in the Bible, gold has always been a symbol of God. It's very pure and it's very valuable. When Jesus was born, remember, they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are all very symbolic. Gold is symbolic of deity. And for Solomon to have shields made out of gold, I think we, it was his way of saying when he walked to the temple, we understand that our shield is God. God is the one who protects us. And so it was just Solomon's way of going to worship, reminding himself and all of his leaders and entourage, our protection comes from God. How ironic that when the Egyptians came, they took their gold shields away. And I think the symbolism was lost on the Egyptians. They just thought it was $30 million worth of gold as of Friday's gold price close. What happens next is strange. You know, Rehoboam's story is in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And he was on the throne for 17 years, and of all the stories that God could have picked, God picks one story for you and me. And it's a strange story. On first blush, it looks like kind of a small thing. But for some reason, God put it in the Bible, I think, to tell us If you want insight into Rehoboam, this is what you need to know. God tells us this little story. In 1 Kings 14, 27, the Bible says King Rehoboam later replaced them with bronze shields as substitutes. See what happened. These gold shields, there were like cutouts in the wall. There were like apertures. There were like spaces for them. And when the Egyptians came and took their gold shields, those spaces cried out and basically said, you guys have, 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 have lost something here. And so Rehoboam didn't want to be embarrassed, but he didn't have enough gold to make shields. And so he did something kind of cheesy. He made some bronze shields and he stuck them up in, their, in the place of the gold shields. And you know what? If the sun shone just right, you might think they were gold. Well, as I said, I wasn't supposed to be here this week. I just had this overwhelming sense that God wanted me to preach bronze shields. And so for the next few moments, controversial though they may be, I want to talk to you and me about bronze shields because I think that's what we're hanging up today, not just in America, but in American churches. There are three thoughts, three words, three phrases that come to me when I think about bronze shields. And the first one is the obvious Cheap substitute. 
You know, when we're weak, we wind up losing. And I think in America, we've lost some things. And, and even though we've lost them, we haven't been honest about losing them, and we've hung up some substitutes in their places. For instance, a long time ago, Americans stopped believing in good. We live in, a, we live in an age that believes in few, if any, moral absolutes. And so we are a nation that has substituted nice for good. It's like, you know, the important thing is to make sure that you don't offend anyone by telling them that the conduct they're engaging in might not be right because that's hate speech. And so consequently, we have to be very careful not to offend anybody. But that's just a bronze shield. See, we lost good. We don't know the difference between right and wrong anymore. We don't know the difference between good and evil anymore. We're weak as a nation. We can't hold our families together. We're trillions of dollars in debt. We're total man. I keep hearing about what an evolved culture we are. I don't think so. But the idea is everybody is nice. And the irony is, though, we're neither good nor nice. I mean, all you have to do is look at social media, look at the things that people say to each other, look at the bullying that goes on. The problem is, if you take away good, you, you don't have nice either. That's the problem with bronze shields. See, they're a cheesy, cheap substitute. They communicate something that isn't real. And here's the big one. We've substituted political correctness for truth. We don't know the truth anymore. We don't even know if there is such a thing as truth. That's sort of the prevailing concept of, of postmodern thought, is that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. So consequently, the important thing is just for us to be political, politically correct. But it's a bronze shield. It isn't a real shield. We see it play out every day. And just a few days ago, at a National Day of Prayer Task Force event on May 7th, Air Force Major General Craig Olson, in a, in a prayer breakfast, on a day of prayer event, he credited God for his accomplishments in the military and referred to himself as a redeemed believer in Christ. The Military Religious Freedom Foundation, whatever that is, sent a letter to the Air Force and said the following, consequently on behalf of itself and over 41,000 active duty and veteran armed forces clients, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation hereby demands that Major General Craig S. Olson be immediately and aggressively and very visibly brought to justice for his unforgivable crimes and, tra crimes and transgressions via trial by general courts martial and that any and all others who assisted him with his NDPTF speech of fundamentalist Christian supremacy be likewise investigated and punished to the full extent of military law. But this kind of insanity is going on every day. I mean, I have websites I open up every day that are Christian websites, and this is happening all the time. And the idea is, <laughs> we don't know the truth anymore. We have political correctness. There was an Oregon baker who was asked to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. And this baker said just violated his conscience. And today the recommended fine for this is $135,000. $135,000? And the Oregon law that was, that was utilized 
to make this judgment said, the facts of this case clearly demonstrate that the clients unlawfully discriminated against the complainants. Under Oregon law, businesses cannot discriminate or refuse service based on sexual orientation, just as they cannot turn customers away because of race, sex, disability, age, or religion. I totally agree with that. The only problem is that's not an application of that law. See, and this is what I'm, I just want to, I mean, here's the thing. It would be the easiest thing in the world for me not to go here today. It would be politically correct for me not to go here. But I'm not dealing with people. I'm dealing with God. There is a huge difference between discrimination and asking someone to violate their conscience. Let me explain. If I went to a vegan... If I went to a vegan service that provided, provided, say, meals for a group of people, and I said to them, I want you to throw me a barbecue, and the vegan said, I'm sorry, I just feel like that's, you know, killing an animal's murder, and I just can't do that. I understand. I'm not going to sue them. They have a conscience. They have a point of view. Not mine. I love barbecue. But if I'm, if I'm dealing with a vegan, I understand they, 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 have, they have a point of view, and I respect that. If I, if I go to a Jewish deli, and I say to them, I want you to make me a ham sandwich, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, we just can't do that. It's, just, it's not in our faith. We just can't do that. I love ham. I don't see anything wrong with ham, but I'm not going to sue them. I, I respect the fact they don't want to make a ham sandwich for me. It's a violation of their conscience. I get that. I would be a fool. I'd be a wretch to sue them. If I went to a Muslim baker and I said, I want you to bake a cake and I want you with icing to write the words, Jesus is Lord, and the Muslim baker said, I'm sorry, sir, I'm a follower of Muhammad. You understand? I just cannot in good conscience write those words. I understand that. I totally get it. I don't blame him. I don't blame her. They have a point of view. I'm asking, this is different. I see now, here's the thing. Discrimination would be if I go to the Muslim baker and they have a, a whole, whole case full of cupcakes and they say, we won't sell you a cupcake that we would sell anybody else because you're a Christian. Then that would be discrimination. But we're in a, we're in a culture today where, if, where and in America, people are demanded to violate their conscience and if they refuse, they are sentenced to huge fines, and ultimately it will be jail sentences. Because see, in America, we've substituted political correctness for truth. We don't know the truth anymore. We don't even know what's true. In a major American school system, they're adopting a transgender curriculum. And in that transgender curriculum, they'll be teaching students that you can be no gender, you can be a gender that you make up for yourself, you can be either gender where do, where do people come up with this stuff? And yet we, like bobble-headed dolls, just go along. And the reason for it is we have got a religion of bronze shields. In fact, you know, last week, even here at New Spring, comment was made in the sermon that marriage is between a man and a woman for a lifetime, and people got up and walked out. You know why? Because that's their religion. That has become a religion for them. And all I'm asking you today is think about, is it possible that we've hung up some bronze shields? Because at the end of the day, you're not dealing with me and I'm not dealing with you. We're dealing with God. So the first word that comes up is cheap substitute. The second word that comes up is denial. Because here's the thing. When they hung up those bronze shields, they could like pat themselves on the back and say, we didn't lose anything. 
Look, look, I mean, when the sun shines just right, look, we got, we got the shields up there. But it was denial, wasn't it? And somebody could say, well, Mark, don't you, you know, especially from the, you know, let's just be nice. Mark, don't you sort of understand that, that it, they didn't want to feel like they'd lost them. So the bronze shields is kind of a good thing. It makes them feel better about themselves. Let me tell you that. The unhealthiest thing in the world was to hang those bronze shields. What they needed more than anything else was to see the bare naked walls that their conduct had caused them to have. Because it might just wake them up to the reality that we weren't exactly the smartest people in the world to sin against God. The empty walls were the healthiest thing they could have experienced. With this being such a frank talk, he could ask, well, Mark, who do you blame for all this? And this is where it gets interesting because I thought a long time before I even brought this up because it could be that you're sitting out there thinking, what do we do with this? I don't blame our politicians. I don't blame our leaders. They're just a reflection of us. And I really don't blame the people. You know who I blame? I blame people like me. I blame the preachers in America. All this craziness is happening, and all of a sudden it's like preachers have lockjaw. And especially pastors like me who pastor megachurches with thousands and thousands of people. It's amazing how I've noticed some of my contemporaries, and I know what they believe, but they, safe, they safely say, stay on other subjects. Maybe, I don't know, I mean, maybe we've come to love the sound of our voice. Maybe we've come to love thousands of people showing up. Maybe we've come to love the fact that we're, we're known around the country. Maybe we've come to love the fact that we have just a little touch of celebrity. And because of that, we're, un, we're I mean, maybe, maybe that's the reason why we're being very cowardly. And I, and I don't know, maybe I'm guilty of it too. But if I have been, may God have mercy on my soul. See, in the book of Ezekiel, God talked to one of his spokesmen, and he said, if I tell the sinner that the sinner will die if he doesn't change, and you warn him, God said, you will have delivered your soul. But he said to Ezekiel, if I tell the sinner that he or she will die, and you don't tell them the truth, and that person dies in his sin, God said to Ezekiel, I will hold you personally accountable. And I don't know exactly what it means, but I don't want to find out. God said to Ezekiel, I will require his blood at your hand. And many churches watch our broadcast here today. They watch us online. And could I just say to all my fellow contemporary preachers, this is a time where we need to just let politically correctness go, political correctness go, and we need to tell the truth. And I have a lot of faults, and I've been honest with you about them, but I'm not a coward. And I understand real clearly, I'm not going to answer to anybody but God on this. And I would wake up during the night last night over and over asking God, don't let me be wrong. Don't let me be wrong. Finally, there's a third, there's a third expression. Not only do I, I see a cheap imitation, not only do I see denial, but the third word that comes to me is examination. You know, I don't know anything about medals. <laughs> Seriously, if the sun was shining on those bronze shields, I might have thought they were gold. But any, anybody, who, anybody who knew the difference between metals, you know, she would have looked at that and said, that's not gold. You know, he would have said, that, that's not, anybody that really knew what they were doing would say, that's not gold. I mean, examination would have shown it for what it was. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I are going to be examined 
You know, one of the things I hear people say is, don't judge me. Well, I, I get that. I don't want anybody to judge me. But I don't know that we really think through that very much. For instance, how do you feel about those guys that invaded the house in Washington, D.C., held the people there captive for 48 hours, probably tortured them, and then set them on fire? You, you okay with that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you think you're, that's wrong? Are you judging them? No, we just know murder is wrong. You didn't come up with that judgment. You're just advancing a judgment that's already there. And that's something that you and I need to think about today because someday we're going to stand before God. Now, I know, I know what somebody's thinking here today. Somebody's saying, that Mark Hoover's the most judgmental dude I ever heard in my life. And I don't blame you for feeling that way with today's talk. But here's the thing. You know, if somebody can be listening to this talk and you say, well, I just get you, I get what you're saying, Mark. You're saying that when we get to heaven, God is going to like judge us and like all the good people get to go to heaven and the bad people get to go to hell. I'm not saying that in a million years. That's not what the judgment's going to be over. I want to close with a verse that just God just bore heavily on me a couple weeks ago as this sermon was coming to me. I want to talk to us about where the, what we're going to be judged over. You know, here's the thing. If you were supposed to play a football game, you would need to know the stadium where the game was going to be played. If you're supposed to dance in a recital, you need to know where the auditorium's going to be. So since we're going to judgment, what are we going to be judged over? I mean, because some of you could, say, could hear this message and say, well, if I've got lots of good or right light in me, then I'm going to heaven. If I have lots of darkness or sin in me, then I'm going to hell. Believe it or not, that's not what the judgment is over. This is directly from Jesus himself. You ready for this? John three nineteen, And this is the judgment. In other words, this is the stadium. This is the, this is the auditorium. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Let me read this to you out of the Amplified because the Amplified kind of like brings in some inferences here. The basis of the judgment or the indictment or the test by which men and women are judged, the ground for the sentence lies in this, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than and more than the light for their works for evil. The truth of the matter is, we all have darkness in our lives. I do too. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. You think I think I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person? Not in, a, not in your life. I have lots of darkness in me. I can be greedy. I can be selfish. I can be angry. I can think on. I can think bad thoughts. I, I have darkness in me. But the Bible, Jesus didn't say the judgment is going to be about whether you have darkness or light in you. He said you're going to be judged on what you love. See, I have darkness in me, but I hate it. I hate my anger. I hate my greed. I hate my pride. Oh, do I hate my selfishness. I hate it. I love the light. I would so love to be like Jesus. And someday I will. I'm not going to be judged on the fact that I've got darkness in me. I'm going to be judged on what I love. And guys, y'all have a choice to make. 21st century America, we're being coached to love darkness 
In fact, we're being coached to hate light. But we're going to face God. And so today, I just want to do something. I want to take just a moment to pray. And like I do in so many services, if you, if you, you say, Mark, I'm just not really sure where I stand with God. I, want to, I just want to give you a prayer to pray. to you know, Because the light here, if you look at it, it's capitalized when Jesus said it. He's talking about himself. That Jesus came into our world, that he was perfect light. For 33 years, he ran the table, never did anything wrong, and then laid that perfect life on a Roman cross. And the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for our sins. And scripture tells us anyone who just puts confidence in him can be forgiven and have everlasting life. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and if you want to pray it with me, I'm going to ask you to join me in this prayer. And I'm, we'll pray it slowly because it's the important thing is not that you repeat the words. The important thing is that you own it. And you mean it when you talk to God. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. I have darkness in me, but I don't love it. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I turned my life over to you. Please forgive me and make me your child. Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before you leave, when you came in, uh, you got to talk to us card. If you just take that card and just say, fill it out and say, I pray with Mark. Come to guest services. A big one in the lobby, a little one back by the coffee shop. If you just pray with me, you can say, Mark, I don't know what happened to me. I just prayed. I have a gift for you. There's a DVD and a book I wrote that will help you. Please come by and get it. Nobody will stalk you, ask for your thumbprint. They just want to give this to you. Thank you for being here for a very special Memorial Day message. God bless you.